Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is so true that that we live in a, a very confusing, a perplexing, a very distressing time in many ways. And yet it is equally true that we, we have the problem of, of being bound up in our own generation, in our own time, in our own circumstance. And we do so readily lose sight of the fact that your people have been called to be faithful, to be people who uphold and, and proclaim and bear the fragrance of the truth of their God and of his purpose for the world that he created, the world that he loves, the world that for all of our perception appears to be spinning out of control. And so in very many ways, the things that we wrestle with are not uncommon. They have always been the lot of your people, always the endowment that you have given to your people, that they would testify, that they would be witnesses in the world of a God who has determined to renew and to restore And one day to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. And even as we look back to the Israelite history, we're reminded, as Paul said, that all of these things that happened in past times were for our sake upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Father, if it's true that those who preceded the coming of the Messiah were obliged and privileged to live in faith as they looked into the mystery that was as yet unrevealed. And yet they walked out their lives trusting you, believing that the God who had promised would prove faithful. How much more we, as Paul said, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We who live in the light of the manifest, demonstrated, triumphal faithfulness of our God. How much more ought we to be a people characterized by faith and the faithfulness of faith. So I pray that you would meet us in this time, Father, that you would enable us to profit from the life of this man who lived some 3,500 years ago, in many ways very distant from our experience, in many ways as near as the faithfulness of another man called according to your purpose. Father, I pray that you would lead out my thoughts, my words, that you would give to each one here ears to hear, and that the things that the things that are said, the things that are of your spirit would bear their fruit, not just in this hour, but in the days and the weeks, the months, the years ahead. May the things that we consider together as we gather as your people in your name, may they truly bear fruit, fruit that will last fruit that is borne by those who are tightly and joyfully connected to the vine. We ask these things in his name and for his sake in the church and in the world. Amen. 
It is interesting to me uh, that we find ourselves in this time these days that, as I say, in many ways are not unusual in the history of the world, in the history of God's people, and yet they strike us in our day as unusual, as certainly disturbing in some ways. And we find ourselves in the midst of this 11th chapter of Hebrews where the writer is drawing on all of these examples of of the faithful who have gone before, that his readers would be encouraged. As I've said so many times, the book of Hebrews, as much as it presents what we could call a high Christology, a very lofty doctrine of Christ, it does so not uh, in terms of giving us some sort of systematic treatment of the doctrine of Christ, but in this high Christology is where the encouragement, the exhortation to faith and faithfulness, the encouragement to steadfastness, to unyielding hope, the writer saw that that was the place in which his readers would find all that they needed to persevere, even as they were struggling, even as they were uh, wrestling with very real difficulties, in very many ways, difficulties that greatly transcend the things that we suffer in our own day. The kinds of of conflict and, and difficulties, struggles, persecutions, loss of property, loss of freedom, that we have yet to experience even in our own personal lives and certainly even in our own country. But last time, and, and we're in this section where the writer is, is uh, dealing with the person of Moses. Last time we looked at the faith of Moses' parents as that is really the way in which the text introduces Moses. And, and again, the writer of Hebrews is very much following the narrative of Israel's Torah, the Pentateuch. He presents these things in the way that the scriptures do. And so he began with Moses' birth and the faithfulness, the faith of his parents. But he moves immediately from the birth of Moses to Moses' mature adulthood. And specifically the point of crisis in Moses' life where he was confronted with the obligation to decide who he was and what it meant for him to actually live according to the purposes of the God who had brought him into the world, the God who had called him. Who was he? How would he understand himself? How would he proceed going forward? It was a crisis in in Moses' own life. And as I said last time, the, the writer of Hebrews gives more time to Moses than anyone else in his roll call of faith other than uh, Abraham himself. And for the obvious reason that Moses was so significant in Israel's history. In many ways, once Moses is born, he's front and center throughout the whole salvation history. Even long after he's dead, Moses is the central figure in the life of Israel, in Israel's self-understanding, in Israel's Torah, in Israel's covenant, in Israel's sense of its own faithfulness. And so the writer, even though he gives all of these verses to Moses, he really just gives us a snapshot of key events or key circumstances in Moses' life. And yet that was entirely sufficient because his Jewish readers fully understood. They knew well, probably better than any other story, they knew the story of Moses because of the centrality of Moses in their own life. Israel understood, these Jewish readers understood that Moses was God's chosen deliverer. He was the mediator of the covenant. He stood between the people and God the people of Israel and God, so much so that Israel's Torah, Israel's covenant, became known as the law of Moses. And even the oral law that became so much a part of Israel's tradition, that is the basic of Talmudic writings and that sort of thing, even the tradition of oral Torah is itself thought by the people of Israel, even the Jewish people, even to this day, to be very much tied to Moses' teaching that was not codified either in the scriptures or in uh, the covenant definition itself. 
Moses was the centerpiece of Israel's relationship with God. He was God's ordained prophet. He was God's ordained judge. He fulfilled all of these roles, and in, in, in a very real way, a priestly role, even alongside his brother Aaron and the priesthood that came through Aaron. Moses, as I said, the greatness ascribed to him is that even the seat of teaching authority in the synagogue was called the chair of Moses. Moses was regarded as the figurehead, the central, the, the central man in Israel's life. Remember, even when, when the, uh, the Jews are confronting Jesus and also other people in his generation, they keep tying themselves back to Moses. We're disciples of Moses. We know where Moses is from. We know where Moses, or what Moses taught. This man, we don't know where he's from. We're disciples of Moses. We're not followers of this man. And Jesus himself even recognized that his own teaching, his own take on Israel's relationship with God would be perceived as him abrogating Israel's law and its prophets. They would see him as a man who was eclipsing and even setting aside Moses. So he was played off against Moses in all sorts of ways. But my reason for emphasizing all of that is the writer doesn't have to give us the whole insight into Moses' life and his circumstance because his readers had been steeped in it from the time they were children. As Israelites, Jewish people who have now come to faith even in the Messiah. But Moses' faith for that reason was especially important as he builds this catalog of people who become a basis for exhorting and encouraging his own readers to persevere in faith. Moses plays probably the most important role in that regard, in some ways maybe even more important than Abraham himself. And what the writer is going to draw out is that Moses had endured the same sorts of trials and difficulties that these readers were enduring. Moses had endured reproach, defamation, opposition, threats of harm, threats of death, even from his own Jewish countrymen. In many ways, primarily from his Jewish countrymen. To the point that Moses at times virtually despaired. He said, God, I can't deal with this people. They're driving me crazy. I can't handle this anymore. They're obstinate. They're stiff-necked. They won't follow you. They won't follow me. Moses had endured all kinds of opposition from unbelieving Israel, and his readers would have made that connection because they were enduring opposition, slander, resistance, defamation from their unbelieving Israelite countrymen. The great pressure being brought to bear against these Hebrew believers was from their own Jewish brethren. And as I've said so many times, I think probably central to that was the claim, as the Jews even brought against followers of Jesus when Jesus was alive, and certainly even against Jesus himself, is that by embracing this one as the Messiah, you are actually renouncing the God of Israel. This one is not the Messiah. And by embracing him as the Messiah, you have set aside Moses, you've set aside the prophets, you've set aside the God of Israel. And so there was this pressure to return to the fold of the people of Israel, to return in some measure at least to the Judaism that they had walked away from when they embraced Jesus as the Messiah. So there was a very tight linkage in that sort of a way. Well, the Hebrews writer also, it's very clear that he shared that high view of Moses that that the Jewish people themselves did, and even that his readers did. But importantly, the writer had come to understand really what the importance of Moses was. 
how Moses had really become truly important, the true importance God intended for him, his greatness, as he fulfilled his own place, his own role, his own calling in God's purposes. See, Israel had this perception of Moses' greatness, but the true greatness of Moses was the role that he played in the salvation history, the role that he played in the life of Israel as that purpose worked itself out towards the culmination, the completion, the fulfillment of the purposes of God in Jesus the Messiah himself. The significance of Moses was the role that he played in the work of God climaxing with the messianic triumph in Jesus himself. And so these readers were still, they were right if they viewed themselves as disciples of Moses, but as he was the one among many who in his own way prefigured the Messiah and the messianic work, and as he prophesied of him. Jesus himself said that, didn't he, in John 5? You search the scriptures because you believe in them. You you find or you realize this thing called eternal life, the life of the chalam haba, the life of the coming age in the way the Jews understood that. And he says, but these are the scriptures that testify of me. And yet you will not come to me in order to actually obtain life. The greatness of Moses was in the role that he played in the working out of God's purposes for the world, culminating with the Messiah himself. So as he jumps, as the writer of Hebrews jumps from the birth of Moses to this crisis of life that comes in his mature adulthood, he skips over everything that comes before that. And I'll just read you these, these verses we're going to consider today, Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. But I want to go back to Exodus 2 and, and fill in those gaps so we understand. If we only had 24 through 26 of Hebrews 11 and we knew nothing else about the Bible, we wouldn't really be able to understand the significance of what he's getting at. But he writes there, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, when he was fully matured, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. And as I say, if you flip back to Exodus chapter 2. We'll fill this in a little bit. This is the way I want to treat it today. I want to look at the circumstance that the Hebrews writer is pointing to and then flesh out the significance of it, the significance of this episode. So if you turn back to Exodus chapter 2, and I know I say this all the time, but it's certainly true in the epistle to the Hebrews and in this section, it's so important that we read the New Testament in the light of the salvation history, that we read what the New Testament gives to us as it looks at the fulfilling of the purposes of God for the world in and through the Messiah. We can't understand, if we start with Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David, okay, great, let's move on. We don't understand really who this person is. We really can only understand the person of the Messiah when we see him as the one in whom the whole of the salvation history, beginning with the creation in Genesis 1, comes to its climax and ultimately finds its meaning and the fulfillment, the realization that God has been promising. So whenever we're reading, we have to be constantly sitting the things in the New Testament within their larger Old Testament context that has Jesus at the center. But Exodus 2, I'm just going to begin with verse 1 because it's a very brief passage. But he says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. This is the priestly tribe, right? And the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful, that there was a distinction about him, and she hid him for three months. 
But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch. She made him an ark and put the child into it, set it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. This is what we talked about last week. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, he was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She recognized him as a Hebrew baby. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, she sees all this happening. Now the sister, Moses' sister, comes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? This is a three-month-old baby. He has to be nursed. Pharaoh's daughter can't nurse him, right? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. And so she went and called Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I shall give you your wages. So now Moses is reunited with his mother and and actually his mother is being paid to continue to nurse this boy. Probably till around three years of age. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. This Hebrew baby became the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. And she, the daughter of Pharaoh, named him Moses. Because I drew him out of the water. It's from an Egyptian root that has this idea of drawing out or, or extracting now, that's the part that the writer skips over. Now, where he picks up is, is what we see in verse 11. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? your brother. But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Deep irony, huh? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. He said, surely the matter has become known. He knows what the consequences are going to be. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. So that's the episode that the writer is drawing from. That's the basic circumstance. And it's an astonishing providence when you think about it. This this Hebrew baby who's born in the context of an edict of the king that every Hebrew male baby is to be thrown in the Nile and, and drowned. And we talked about the significance of Moses' mother giving him to the Nile, but giving him into God's hands rather than giving him into the hands of an Egyptian to be put to death. But he's delivered over to the Nile. And Moses' parents have no way of knowing what's going to happen to him. They can hope and they can speculate, but they're powerless slaves in a brutal world. And they have to just entrust him to their God. And that's again this issue of seeing a distinction in him. They had some sense that this child was uniquely given by God for some purpose. We don't know what they believe that was, but they saw something in this child that said this child must not be handed over to the Egyptians to be put to death. But yet it came to the point where they couldn't keep him anymore and they had to put him in that place. Well, in God's providence, of all people that could come down to the Nile and find him, it was Pharaoh's daughter. The very one who had issued the edict that Hebrew babies, boys, boy babies, are to be put to death, finds a Hebrew boy baby. And in defiance of her father, refuses to kill him. And from that moment, she had decided, this boy is going to be mine. But she couldn't 
feed him. She couldn't care for him. She wasn't a nursing mother. And so in God's providence, Moses ends up back with his family. But really, in a way, again, for a limited period of time, knowing that eventually he's going to be handed over to Pharaoh's daughter. And another amazing providence is that Pharaoh's daughter, who it seems was not married, she was a young woman, she ends up bringing this baby into her father's household and making him her son. How does that work? And we can speculate as to, okay, well, did she not tell her father he was a Hebrew? Obviously not. How would he not know? How did this work? How did this play? And we don't really know. What we know is that God saw to it that this Hebrew baby, this son of Hebrew slaves, this child of distinction, would be raised to be a prince of Egypt. There are some who speculate that Moses may have even been in a position to eventually become Pharaoh of Egypt. In Stephen's account of this episode in Acts 7, he talks about Moses what, what a superlative person he was, his education, his wisdom, his sophistication. He rose to the top of the heap in Egypt. He had a royal legacy. And everything that goes with that, God saw to it that Moses would become one of the greatest men in Egypt, which meant one of the greatest men in the ancient Near, Near East. A man who had risen to the top, in a sense, of what could be achieved in this world. He was a prince of Egypt, raised as Egyptian royalty, with all of the benefits, all of the endowments that that exalted status afforded to him. And yet, We don't know exactly how, but the narrative strongly suggests that that throughout those years, probably from age three till now, Stephen says he was near 40. But the, the idea is that he was fully grown. He was fully matured as a man. Somehow throughout those years, the text suggests that he was aware of his Hebrew identity. Now, assuming he was taken from his parents at age three, it's likely that he wouldn't remember any of that as he got older, right? How many of us remember something when before we were three? I don't. Maybe you do, but I don't. So we don't know if he was allowed to still have some contact with his family through those years. We don't really know. But certainly Stephen, in the way that he presents it, this account, Moses went out to his brethren with the full sense that he himself was a Hebrew. And that's all that the text wants us to understand. But that sets up this great dichotomy. An enslaved son of Abraham and the son of the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. An exalted son of Egypt, enslaved son of Abraham now facing a predicament, now coming to the point of decision, a a predicament of self-understanding, of allegiance, of preference. Who is he? Who will he be? And what are the incentives and disincentives on each side of that? Who will Moses be? Well, that gets us then to this issue of the significance of Moses' decision. And the first thing that I want to bring out in this is this decision involves the question, the choice, Egyptian or Hebrew? Egyptian or Hebrew? But then secondly, man of sight or man of faith? And that's ultimately where the writer's going. So the writer says, Moses, when he had become great... And the adjective has both the sense of of greatness in terms of status or accomplishment or dignity or whatever, as well as also the idea of physical maturation. And I think both are implied here because Moses was a fully grown man. He was in his prime as a man, but he also was truly great. 
He was the prince of Egypt. And he faced his decision. The point of that is to to recognize that he faced his decision as a fully mature, educated, sophisticated man. A man who fully understood the issues and fully understood the consequences. He wasn't a 10-year-old boy trying to figure out which parent he was going to go with or something like that. God had brought him to the point in his life where he was fully able, fully equipped, fully prepared to make this judgment. And yes, it's true that Moses responded in the moment when he killed the Egyptian. He didn't go out to visit his brethren with the intention, I'm going to kill an Egyptian today. That wasn't his intent. And so it was a response in the moment, in a sense. But it wasn't a a hasty or an unthought-through decision. The text even says he saw this beating taking place, and he waited, and he watched. And when the opportunity came, then he went and killed that Egyptian. But he had at least several minutes to sit and think about this situation and what he was going to do about it. And not just to think about, do I go and intervene against this, uh, you know, on behalf of this, this Hebrew, against this Egyptian, but he understood the full consequences of what that would mean. And that's why when he knew the word had gotten out, he was scared and he fled. He understood the significance. He understood the implications of what he was doing when he killed that Egyptian He knew that his action meant setting aside his Egyptian identity with all of the status, all of what his life had been. It meant setting all of that aside as a prince of Egypt. He was effectively standing against Egypt's authority and rule. The Hebrews were slaves. You didn't intervene on behalf of a slave and kill an Egyptian. That was a capital crime. It was not an insignificant thing. But he wasn't simply taking a man's life. He was acting against his own grandfather. He was acting against his grandfather's rule. He was acting against the very people whose favor and endowments had made him one of the greatest men in the world. And you have to believe that Moses, being raised from the time he was just out of his toddlerhood, that he would have had a deep affection for his mother, his Egyptian mother. And he probably had a deep affection for his grandfather, who was the pharaoh. This was not a callous action. And he understood that in doing this, killing this Egyptian, he would end up alienating his grandfather. He would turn his grandfather's heart against him. And that's, in fact, what happened. When Pharaoh heard about it, he set out to kill Moses, the one who had been raised as his own grandson for nearly 40 years. Moses fully understood what he was doing. When he raised his hand against that Egyptian, he'd already weighed that decision against his own life, his status, his wealth, his power, the family that he knew, the life that he knew, even the value of his own life, because he knew if he did this and he was caught, he would be killed. He'd be executed. But for all of that, the significance of Moses' decision, being on the horns of that dilemma, for all of that, and and all the things I said are significant, but ultimately the significance of this episode, as the Hebrews writer is, is wanting his readers to understand it, transcends those sorts of things. It doesn't exclude them, it doesn't diminish them, but it transcends them. And you, to me, it's, in, it's animated in the way the writer, again, continues his statement. He says that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And this is where we have to, again, take this episode and situate it 
in the salvation history, who Moses is, what God is doing, where Moses fits into God's purposes. Otherwise, it's easy to conclude that the choice that Moses had was between uh, suffering unjustly along with his Hebrew countrymen or continuing to have his comfortable life in Pharaoh's house. If you will, the choice between Uh, you know, somebody taking me out for dinner or pulling my fingernails out with pliers. It's a pretty easy choice, right? Do I suffer? Do I not suffer? Do I suffer? Do I have it go well for me? But to take that view is really to miss the point. It's to miss the point. And in fact, I think it flows out of and also reinforces this natural notion that we tend to have as human beings. And you see it in all religion that ultimately faithfulness looks like this self-denial of austerity or self-imposed hardship. Paul even talks about that, doesn't he, in the epistle to the Colossians. There is a seeming wisdom, there is a seeming godliness in harsh treatment of the body, self-imposed worship, a false humility. Those things have the appearance of wisdom, but they really lack any value in dealing with the fundamental problem of sensuality or life by the senses. The natural way of doing human life. But it's been common in all religions throughout history, and, and you, know, you see it even in things like the Catholic evangelical vows, the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience, right? You see it in, in the Philippines, people impaling themselves on crosses at Easter time you know, to show God how devoted they are to him, how willing they are to suffer that he would be exalted. But again, if it were a choice between, okay, I'm going to give myself over to suffering or I'm going to live a comfortable life, if that was the issue here, then why would the writer, it would seem to put him in an awkward spot to have just made much of Joseph's faith when Joseph had at least the status and the wealth and the power in Egypt that Moses had. As I said before, Pharaoh said of Joseph, I may be Pharaoh in Egypt, but nobody raises his hand or lifts his foot except by the word of Joseph. Joseph had supreme authority under Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Wealth, power, status. And he never walked away from those things. He continued in that place, in that role, till the day he died. And yet the writer presents him as a great example of faith and faithfulness. So it can't just be about this lifestyle versus that lifestyle. That's the point that I'm making. I think the key is the way the writer associates this sin that he speaks of and the pleasures of it. He sets that in distinction with solidarity with, he doesn't say the Hebrew people or the Israelites, he says the people of God. And I think that phrase is very intentional. Because that phrase, people of God, underscores this idea that these Hebrews that Moses was faced with, do I retain this life or do I embrace this life, that these Hebrews represented the covenant people of God, the people of Abraham. It underscores their covenant identity, their covenant purpose. So the choice that Moses was faced with wasn't suffering or ease, wealth or poverty. These people that gave me birth, these people that raised me, it was a choice between faith or unfaithfulness. He could choose to embrace and pursue his own calling on behalf of God's covenant household, or he could choose to ignore or deny it. And in that way, deviate from the truth. This is why the whole case of Moses is built in terms of his distinction from the time of his birth. There's something unique about this child. And Stephen also shows us that by the time Moses goes out and intervenes with his countrymen, he's already aware. We don't know how, 
but he has some sense of the fact that he has been chosen by God to deliver the sons of Israel. Stephen says that. When he intervened with his brothers that were fighting, they said, who made you judge over us? Stephen says Moses supposed they would understand that God had raised him up to deliver them. Now, we don't know how Stephen arrived at that conclusion, but clearly that was the Jewish perception of Moses, and he was aware at at some level of his own calling. And so the choice that he was facing was, would he be faithful to the ordination of God that God had given to him, to his own calling, or would he be unfaithful to it? And that deviating from the truth is the issue of sin. It's not sin of living a you know, lascivious lifestyle and luxury and debauchery and all of that, you know, the Hollywood lifestyle. That's not the point. It's the sin of missing the mark, deviating from the purpose of God for him. Joseph had proven faithful to his vocation as the prince of Egypt. Moses was obliged to also prove faithful to his vocation, his calling. But in the case of Joseph, faithfulness to his calling involved embracing his status as priest of, or prince of Egypt. In Moses' case, embracing or fulfilling, owning his own calling meant renouncing that status because of the purpose that God had for each of them. It wasn't about the wealth or lack of wealth. It was about their fidelity to their calling. That's why their lives looked different, and yet they were both faithful. So that leads into this second piece then, which is this choice between being a man of sight or a man of faith. And you hear me say it all the time. There are two ways that people can live. They can live by faith or they can live by sight. And sight is making judgments based on what we know experientially, what we expect, what we predict, what the statistics say, what our own experiences have told us. Faith is living life according to the God who is true. And, and I've said it again many times, faith is not this abstract, whimsical, ethereal, you know, I, I believe God for good things, or I believe God for this, or I believe God for that. Faith is discerning what God has promised, what he says he's doing, what he says this is about, and it's aligning ourselves with that. Faith is very conscious, it's very purposeful, it's very informed. It's not wishful thinking. It's not the wish dream. So the Hebrews writer saw more in Moses' action than simply a man who his loyalty to family and heritage outweighed his desire to live a comfortable life. And his actions were also more than simply a man who had a deep sense of justice and fairness and couldn't stand to see somebody beaten unfairly or unjustly. The writer saw, and he says, that's the reason he deals with this in this text, he saw Moses' action, which was Moses' decision, he saw it as an act of faith. What Moses did was an act of faith. It wasn't an act of compassion. It wasn't an act of self-denial in the sense that I'll go suffer in the mud pits with my Jewish countrymen rather than live in Pharaoh's palace. It was an act of faith. It showed that Moses, like the patriarchs before him, had his gaze fixed on God's promise and the reward it held out. And it was that reward that rendered the reproach of Christ more valuable than Egypt's bounty. And I just want to talk a couple minutes about this idea of the reproach of Christ because this gets us into a quandary right away. We say, wait a minute, Christ wouldn't be born for 1,500 years. How, you know, how is Moses bearing the reproach of Christ? Did he know Jesus? Was he given some kind of supernatural insight into uh, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who would be born and would become Israel's Messiah? 
And I don't think that's the point. There are others who believe that this idea of bearing the reproach of Christ, Christ simply means Messiah, that the writer's actually pointing to Moses and his own messianic status and role. See, part of our problem is that we, we hear this word Messiah or the Greek equivalent Christ, and, and we attach that to the person of Jesus. And that's not wrong, but fundamentally, Messiah simply means anointed one. And in, in Israel's history, priests were messiahs. They were anointed for a particular work. The term Mashiach is used of Israel's priests. It's used of Israel's prophets. It's attached to many of Israel's kings. It's attached to Israel itself. Israel, the nation, the covenant son of God, was Yahweh's Mashiach. And even God himself ascribes that title to the pagan Persian king Cyrus, doesn't he? Cyrus is my Mashiach. Cyrus is my anointed one because I have raised him up. I have anointed him to liberate my people, bring them back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Cyrus was Mashiach. And actually, that wide-ranging use of the term, uh, the designation of Messiah or Mashiach, is, is, I think, profoundly significant because by the time it comes to be localized on Jesus himself, all of this, the, these figures and, and representations throughout history that have borne that designation, all of that gets summed up in him. All of these historical examples of God's anointed, now all gets summed up and focused on Jesus himself. He's the anointed one who embodies in himself all of those messianic figures and representations. So in that sense, we could say that Moses, as Yahweh's anointed, he's his chosen prophet, he's his chosen judge, he will serve in this ruling role, even in a mediatorial role, a a quasi-priestly role, that you could attach to the person of Moses this designation of Mashiach or Messiah. And he certainly did bear the reproach, meaning the disdain, the censure, the rejection that was attached to faithfulness to his own anointing. But having said all of that, I think I agree with those who would say that the writer is here using this term Christos, which is just the Greek equivalent of Messiah. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. We all know that, right? It's his title. It's Jesus the Messiah with all that that embodies and all that that brings with it. But because of how the writer uses that term throughout Hebrews, I'm I'm with those who say that the writer probably most likely had Jesus the Messiah in mind when he spoke about bearing the reproach of Christ. Well, then that bears again the question, how did he make that connection? How did Moses' circumstance and his decision of faith implicate this thing of the reproach of Christ? Did God give him supernatural insight that he looked down through time and he could see the reproach that was going to come to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who would be Israel's Messiah? No, I don't think that we have to say that. I don't think that that's the point. But as I said, Moses does seem, based on what the scriptures tell us, he seems to have had a sense of his unique calling. According to Stephen, he understood that he was the deliverer of Israel. Well, why does that matter? Because the deliverance of Israel was the deliverance of the Abrahamic people. That the people of Abraham would dwell with God in in the place of his sanctuary. The land of Canaan was what it was because it was God's dwelling place. God would gather the Abrahamic people to himself. Israel would be his son. He would be the father. And in that way, through that relationship, through faithfulness to that relationship, Israel would fulfill its calling on behalf of the world, that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And that promise ultimately looked to and was embodied in and fulfilled in the Messiah. That's what Paul means in Galatians 3 when he says, when God made his promise to Abraham and his offspring, his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, but seed as one. He was referring to the Messiah. Ultimately, the Abrahamic promise was bound up in the son of Abraham that is the Messiah himself. So in that sense, Moses' awareness of his own calling as a messianic figure, as an anointed figure, did look to the future messianic person and work. Just as Jesus said of Abraham, he saw my day and he rejoiced. You're not yet 50 years old. Abraham lived a lot. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? He saw my day. Does it mean that Abraham saw a portrait of Jesus of Nazareth or that he understood how all these things work? But he understood when God made a promise to him by covenant that in you all the families of the earth would be blessed, a promise that looked back to Eden and the promise of God that a seed to come from Eve would be the one who would restore life to the dead creation. A son will come to Eve And Adam names her Eve because he recognizes that she is the mother of all the living. Death has come over the whole cosmos because of this thing that we call the fall. And God promises to bring life out of death and renew and restore all things. Well, Moses looks at his role as deliverer through that lens. And we know that the Exodus itself becomes the great prototype of the second Exodus that comes in the Messiah himself. Isaiah said the Lord would arise and he will do a great work of deliverance and liberation and cleansing and purging and renewal and in gathering. And he will be the God of his people. They will be his people. He will dwell in their midst. So in conclusion, then the writer, I believe, is saying that Moses viewed himself in terms of his unique role in God's outworking of his intent for the world that would reach its climax in Jesus of Nazareth. In that sense, he saw the day of the Messiah. And God had even said to him, remember at the end of Deuteronomy, when he says to the the Israelites, he says, remember back at Horeb, remember back at Sinai, when you said, Moses, we can't bear to hear God's voice. You listen to him, and then you come and speak to us. We'll listen to you. We can't bear to hear God. And God said to Moses at that time, and Moses is rehearsing this with Israel as they're preparing to go into the land, but he says, God said to me at that time, the people have spoken well. I will make you the mediator between me and them. But also I will raise up a prophet like you from among the people. And I will put my words into his mouth. He will speak my words. And the people must listen to him. The one who speaks in my name. And if they don't, I will require it of them. So even Moses understood that his own role in Israel looked to another to come in whom his own work would be consummated and, 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 and brought to its true realization. A prophet like him. A prophet that would mediate the covenant. A prophet that would stand between the people and God. A prophet who would speak Yahweh's words that were put into his mouth. So Moses understood, as those who had gone before and many who had come after him, that he was God's anointed vessel, chosen to advance God's purposes until the day when they would all be fulfilled in a unique anointed one, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abraham. Moses saw, my point is, he saw himself in that stream of work and accomplishment. He didn't just see himself as a random individual. Okay, you know, do I choose Egypt? Do I choose the Jews? Which do I pick? It wasn't that. He saw his decision as really his, would he situate himself in faith within the purpose that God had for him, or would he stand back from that? Would he situate himself in the purpose that God had for him? 
So God had providentially elevated Moses such that in making that decision of faith, he had everything to lose and nothing to gain under the sun. Nothing to gain under the sun, everything to lose. God raised him up to the point where the decision couldn't have been, well, I'll lose this, but I'll get this. Yeah, I'll lose this family, but I'll have this family. And there's a girl waiting for me that I can marry and have children with, or whatever, you know. It was everything goes away, and he has nothing in terms of the life that he had known in this world. The only upside for him was the riches that are the reward of faithfulness. Owning, owning the purpose of God for his own life. Participating in that purpose of renewal and restoration, God's big purpose for the world, and ultimately then himself having a place in its outcome. That was Israel's hope throughout all of Israel's history. As I've said so many times, if you would have said to a Jew, let me tell you how you can be saved and go to heaven, they'd have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Their, their hope was in this thing called the Cholam Haba, the renewal of all things, the new creation, the renewing of the heavens and the earth. Not their disembodied spirit going off to a place called heaven. And Moses was looking to that reward. His share in God's kingdom and in God's kingdom reign. The kingdom that would be creational renewal, the recovery of life that God had pledged in Eden and that he'd bound up in Abraham and his offspring. And so he wasn't choosing between wealth, power, security, status, and weakness, poverty, abuse, mistreatment, but between the, the embrace of human existence as we all know it and as we all cherish it and the human existence that is life indeed. And I want to end real quickly with you just by looking at something that, again, I think is very important in Jesus' teaching, but we tend to misunderstand the point that he's making. This is something Jesus said in different contexts in different ways, but I think this context makes it very clear to see what he's getting at. This is when he's at Caesarea Philippi, and he said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, you know, some say a prophet. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And Jesus then begins to tell them about what it means that he is the king of Israel. Because that's what the Messiah is, the king of Israel. And he begins to tell them, this is verse 20, he warned them that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. And from that time, he began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. And Peter, who's confessed him as the Messiah, but has his own understanding of what that means, what that will entail, how the triumph of God will work out, how exactly God will become king over all the earth in his messianic son. When Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, Peter says, no, we'll never let that happen to you. You're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Let me clarify that for you. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God thinks. I mean, you can imagine what Peter would have thought. You just told me the Spirit revealed these things to me. Now you're saying, get behind me, Satan. And he's not saying Jesus is Satan. He's saying that Peter's thinking is the satanic mind, which runs counter to the truth. Counter to what we would think. Counter to what we expect. Counter to what we want. Counter to what we think life is all about. 
And it's in that context that Jesus says to him, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find his life. One of the great paradoxes in the scripture, right? How do you lose your life and find your life? You either, you either have it or you don't have it. How do you lose it and then you find it? And he doesn't say find another life. He says find your life. You lose your life, you find your life. What is he saying? He's saying that you have to lose what you think life is, what you think your life is, what you think life consists in, in order to actually obtain what is truly life. And that's the idea of this taking up your cross of self-denial. It's not, again, okay, I'm going to give away all my money, I'm going to live in a refrigerator box, you know, I'm going to go live on the ground in, in wherever, you know. Indonesia or something. It's not that. What did Jesus' cross represent? It was Jesus' own confrontation of, condemnation of, and execution of the way of being human, the way of understanding our own human identity as image bearers. It was his putting that to death. And that's why Paul says, when Christ died, all died. Everybody who lives human existence as we know human existence was put to death in the Messiah. And when he was resurrected, what came forth was the new and true everlasting consummate human being that God intended for his human image bearers. So for us to take up our cross is for us to own that truth that is yes and amen in Jesus himself. It's not, you know, play golf once a month or whatever, or, you know, give up chewing gum for Lent or whatever we think it is. It's not that. It's owning the truth of what it is to be human beings, people who are bound to God and live this thing called lives of faith. In other words, to be people who are Christ people, sharers in his life. It's for us to constantly be owning the fact, as Paul said, that we were crucified in Christ. We no longer live, and yet we do live, but not us. Christ lives in us. Our call is our call to own the truth of what our life actually is by owning it in the Messiah. In that sense, we have exactly the same obligation that Moses did. It's not about how much stuff do we have or how comfortable our lives are, how hard our lives are per se. It's that will we live life through the grid of a new way of being human that's defined by the mind of Christ himself. See, Peter thought he was was honoring Jesus when he said, we'll never let them kill you. And Jesus said, you don't get it. This is not how it works. And when he's washing their feet and Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the king, you don't wash our feet, we wash your feet. He says, unless you share in me in this way, you have no share in me. This is about rethinking things. It's about rethinking life. It's about rethinking truth. It's about rethinking what it is to be the people of God in a world that is hostile to him. And if we focus on how much stuff do we have or, or you know, how much do we deny ourselves earthly you know, pleasures or whatever, we're missing the whole point. Paul lived that life, and it wasn't the life of faith. Moses' choice was owning and situating himself in his own place in God's purpose for the world. And that's the same with us. God's not calling us to liberate the American people or do you know, whatever it is we, we, we might want to think. He is calling us to, say, to understand that our place, our time, our circumstances, we have the obligation to be the fragrance of Christ and to testify of this God who, as Paul says, in, it, in the administration of the fullness of the times is working towards the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Christ. To live authentic lives, lives that are true, lives that testify of the truth. 
That challenge has never ceased. It is always the obligation of faith. Father, perhaps there's a lot in this. Perhaps there's not that much in it. I just pray that you would help us to see these things. It is a paradigm shift in our thinking. We are called to be, throughout our lives, a repentant people, and that's because we have to always be resetting our minds. We have to be resetting our thinking. We tear down strongholds in our minds, every seemingly lofty thing that is actually raised up against a true knowledge of you. We take every thought captive to the actual obedience that is obedience to the true and living Christ. Not maybe what we think, not what we want, not what we expect, not how we think life is supposed to be. But we are Christ people in the world. Stewards of the life of new creation. That's the gospel that we proclaim. And that's why the church is even so important. Because in forming a new human community bound together by the Spirit, you testify to the world of what actually the meaning of Jesus' cross is. I pray that you would help each one of us to be a thinking people, a mindful, a careful, a wise, a discerning, a growing people. We have been entrusted with the greatest endowment, the riches of the reproach of Christ, and I pray that we would be faithful stewards, joyful stewards of that reproach. And that, in fact, it would be his reproach, and not the reproach of foolishness or unwise thinking or laziness or worldliness, Father, help us in these things. Cause them to bear great fruit in our lives. That we would bear the fragrance of the Messiah, not our own fragrance, his fragrance in every place. Truth tellers, truth livers, truthful people. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.